If you would this morning turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. It is just so good to be here this morning. It's good to be saved. And uh, I mean just to know that you share a relationship with the God of the universe and what He did to make that happen. I was just so uh, thankful this morning just to get up and to be able to come to church and you know, to see the first snow on the mountains and, uh, you know, just think about the beauty of God's creation and, uh, and come in here and I see some of our summer saints are still here <laughs> after the first snow. You know, it's, it's written in the Bible somewhere that if you don't leave before that, you've got to stay here. And so <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. But uh, I'm just happy in the Lord and uh, glad to be saved this morning. Uh, if you would, let's go to Mark chapter 12, as I said, verse 38. And uh, we've been looking at the book of Mark, obviously, for uh, about a year and a half now. We've been going through it on Sunday morning, and we've seen that uh, Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant. He is more concerned with the works of Christ as opposed to the words of Christ. And I mentioned last week how certain New Testament books are a reflection of themes in the Old Testament. And Mark has really seen more in Isaiah, I think, than, than anything else. And certainly we've seen the works of Christ and healings and casting out devils and the training of the disciples. We've seen all these things. But when you get to the end of chapter 11 and you get into chapter 12, we've spent a lot of time in chapter 12, but all of this takes place in the temple. Jesus is preaching in the temple And he's interrupted by the Jewish authorities, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And they ask him a series of questions that try to trip him up. We walk through that. And we left off last week where Jesus turned the tables and now he asked them a question. And he asked them and he quoted Psalm 110 verse 1 where it says, The Lord... Said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. That was David speaking. And the question that Jesus asked is, why did David call his son the coming king? Why did David call his son Lord? Who calls their son Lord? And what he was saying is, he was more than just an earthly king. Jesus was more than an earthly king. He was a heavenly king. And now that he's ascended to the Father, he is seated at His right hand in glory, even as we speak. And so if there was ever a time where Jesus just flat out said, I am God, it would be then. He did it other times, but He did it here too. And so they didn't ask Him any more questions after that because they had no answer for it. And now that He's asked a question, now He's going to point some fingers and make an accusation. Uh, He deals very, very harshly with the scribes and Pharisees here and. So we're going to look at that, but uh, let's begin in verse 38. It says, And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feast, which devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. And Jesus sat over against the treasury, And behold how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. 
And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, This poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would fill me your Holy Spirit. Give me a humble spirit as I preach this difficult subject this morning. And God, I just pray that uh, you would visit your people today. God, that uh, Lord, if there's one hurting, you would help them and encourage them. God, perhaps if there's one lost that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, I pray that you save them today. And I just pray that you would empty me of sin and self and that I wouldn't be seen, but that Christ would be magnified. And we just thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Now, I've always found it humorous. I've I've been in church services before where the preacher would get up and he would kind of preface what he was about to say by saying, yeah, this is a difficult subject. In fact, there's a lot of preachers that are too scared to preach about what I'm fixing to preach about. And most of the time it would be a a certain sin, maybe sexual sin or maybe hell. And, And I thought to myself... You know, here in a Baptist church, those are probably not that difficult to preach on because the vast majority of people are going to agree with you. The truth is, uh, when you go down to tearing idols within your own ranks, it's then you'll find out who your friends really are. That's one of those messages today. We're going to tear down some idols. And one thing that I haven't really thought a whole lot about until today is the last church that I pastored and the vast majority of churches that I preached in most of them had a, an emergency exit to the right and to the left of the pulpit. And this church doesn't have that. We may need to go in a boat on that. That way if people get really upset, I can make an escape. I guess I could get out the window, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be nearly as quick as a door. But uh, we're preaching today on the thought of don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. Now, I know that a lot of the things I'm going to talk about today, because I'm going to give specific examples. I've seen it in the Baptist church. There's a lot of Pharisees within the Baptist church. There's a lot of uh, Pharisaical practices, and, and there's things that we have taken, traditions that we have taken, and elevated them to the level of Holy Scripture. And we shouldn't have a tolerance for that. We really shouldn't. And so we're going to deal with some things. Now, I want to explain, before I even get in the text... Jesus specifically mentions the scribes here. And the scribes and the Pharisees, no doubt, they were two different groups of people. Uh, You could have scribes that were not Pharisees, and you could have Pharisees that may not be scribes, but for the most part they overlapped. And so if you'll notice, and we'll see some of these verses today as we go through this, but Jesus often condemned the scribes and the Pharisees together uh, because they... They might have been slightly different, but they go together like peanut butter and jelly. You can't really separate them. And so I'm going to talk about don't be a Pharisee, even though he mentions the scribes here because they go together. And I think we understand this better, and I I don't think it does any damage to the text. I think you can understand this. But uh, before we get into our text this morning, I think it's important to understand a little bit of background behind the Pharisees. I mean, really, you have to ask yourself the question, where did they come from? Because you don't read about them in the Old Testament, but yet the Gospels are are full of them. Where did they come from? And without getting very deep into this, I I just want to give kind of a view of 30,000 feet of this. 
But between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you had a period of about 400 years. And during that 400 years, Alexander the Great conquered pretty much the known world, the Greek Empire. And he believed so much in Greek culture that he infused that culture and language upon everybody that he conquered. That's known as Hellenization or Hellenism. And during this time in Palestine, after Alexander the Great died at age, he was in his early 30s. He conquered the known world, pretty much drank himself to death because he had nothing else to do. But uh, when he died, uh, he had generals that basically fought for territory and fought for control. And even in this area of Palestine, it was just a real power struggle. And you had group after group after group that would come to power. They would be defeated. Another group would come to power. They'd be, be defeated. And about 130 years before Christ comes on the scene, there was a group that took over known as the Hasmoneans or the Hasmonean dynasty. And what they did is they, they were very corrupt, very crooked, and they combined the office of priest and king. And then on top of that, they would sell it out to the highest bidder. If you wanted to be the priest king of this area of Palestine or this area, all you have to do is pay them the most money. That's one reason um, uh, most scholars believe that Herod was the last of the Hasmoneans. And that's one reason why the Pharisees hated him so much. So this is where the Pharisees came from. When the Hasmoneans took over, you had two groups that came out of that, really. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. The Pharisees were very angry that they were buying and selling the offices of priests and king. They realized how wicked that was. The Sadducees, on the other hand, supported it because they were a bunch of bootlickers. They would have supported anybody in power. And so uh, when you look at that, now we think of the Pharisees and we think of them as these horrible henchmen, just the worst villains that could have ever been. In their heart they were, but they did a lot of good things. They believed a lot of good things. And when we think about where they came from, they came out of a hatred for this wicked practice of buying and selling the priesthood. That's an honorable thing, is it not? They believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't. That's an honorable thing. They honored the Old Testament Scripture. They, they were responsible for, uh, the scribes were responsible for copying it and preserving it. All of those are good, honorable things, are they not? And so, even though we look at the Pharisees and we say, man, they were just wicked. But at that time, they looked like the good guys. And I'm here to tell you, that if the Pharisees, the actual Pharisees, were alive and well today in 2021, they would be in church every time the doors were open. Uh, they would be wearing a three-piece suit and tie or a long dress, and they would be toting a King James Bible under their arm, and they would probably be slandering the Democrats every chance they got. I mean, I'm honest. And so they would look like good guys, but they weren't. They thought they were good, but they weren't. And so I say that, lest even among the people here this morning, there may be some Pharisees among us. I mean, this is why this is so dangerous to preach this stuff. Because it's going to hit way too close to home. And I know I'm going to use some examples, and you're going to look at me and say, you've got to be kidding me. 
But the things I'm talking about, even if you've never dealt with them, I have. I've seen them. It's a big deal where I come from in certain circles. But even if you think every example I use today is silly, you can still find things in your own life and apply them. And so we're going to look at the thought of don't be a Pharisee. Now, the the problem with the Pharisees is their religion only went skin deep. It was only an outward thing. Their hearts were not right with God. And I want to challenge you with this. It is possible to hate certain things that are evil and not love God. There are certain things the Pharisees hated that were evil, and they were right to hate them, but they didn't do it out of a love for God. There are some things that the Muslims hate that are evil, but they don't love God. And so we need to really check ourselves and examine our hearts and our motivations. Christ's greatest condemnation of the Pharisees is found, I believe, in Matthew 23 and verse 23. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. See how he grouped them together? He said, Hypocrites, for ye paid tithe of mint and cumin, and have omitted, this is it, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you have to done and not to leave the other undone. The problem with the Pharisees is they harped on the letter of the law, but they completely missed the heart of the matter, the heart of the law. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment just a few verses before this? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, these are the greatest commandments. See, he understood the heart behind the law and the motive behind it. So if I'm telling you, don't be a Pharisee this morning, I think we ought to be able to recognize what that looks like. So I want to try to wrestle with the question, what are the marks of a Pharisee? And as I tear down these idols, if you get upset with me, Just please, let's make a deal. I want you to remember something. I think this is very important. In the book of Galatians, when Paul told them, he said, Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Now, I actually actually heard a sermon entitled, Have I Become Your Enemy? And in that sermon, uh, he would ask a question. He said, "I, I guess he had some people in his church that were mad with him. And every point he would say, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth about alcohol or because I told you the truth about sin or I told you the truth about this. And he went on down dealing with these issues about sin. But what I find interesting is he took the whole thing out of context because the context was this. The people that were upset with him were the religious crowd. They became his enemy and they got mad at him because he was preaching about Christian liberty of all things. Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth about Christian liberty? And it was the religious crowd that got mad with him. Not, not, uh, not the drunkards, not the adulterers. It was the religious crowd. By the way, it was the religious crowd that killed Jesus and nailed him to the cross and conspired against him. Oh man, I'm already feeling the tension and I like it. (laughs) So what are the marks of a Pharisee? Well, number one, it would be appearance. They're concerned with appearance, the way things look on the outside. Look at verse 38. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing. 
And so Jesus specifically says, don't be like them. They're going to receive the greater damnation, which is really strong language. And then he says, why? And the first thing he says is about their appearance, about their clothing. They would wear these long, ridiculous-looking robes like they went out of their way to get attention. And they thought it made them look good. They were extremely concerned with how they looked to other religious people. And I guess the common people in this situation, uh, Christ made it a point to mention this, uh, they dressed in such a way that they would be seen as being pious and religious by other people. Now let me say this, let me just lay a ground rule when it comes to clothing. Um, first of all, we're commanded to be modest. Uh, we're, we're commanded... Uh, to be adorned in modest apparel. You find that in several places, I think most specifically of 1 Timothy 2, 9. That's not even up for debate. It's not a gray area. It's not a matter of Christian liberty. Uh, We ought to dress in such a way that honors God. And we honor God because we dress in such a way that doesn't uh, desire to attract lustful attention from other people. We shouldn't do that. We should honor God with the way we dress. Our clothes communicate a message. The way we dress is a language. It speaks a message. And so that's not even up for debate. We're not even talking about that. Uh, but what I'm talking about here, uh, after, that, after the modesty issue, it's, uh, a lot of it's really a matter of preference. And uh, the examples of Phariseeism in the church that I think about uh, that come to mind uh, even uh, what I'm wearing this morning with a suit and tie. Now, let me, let me get these categories out here because I don't want anybody leaving say, you know, saying that I didn't say something uh, that I, or saying something I didn't say. But uh, I wear a suit and tie because it's a personal conviction that I have and I want to do that to honor the Lord. I want to give God my best. And it's not pharisaical to want to do that. It's not. That's okay. If you want to do it unto the Lord, do it unto the Lord. Everything you do, whatever you do, whether it be eating or drinking, or all to the glory of God. But what becomes pharisaical is when I raise that conviction to a level of biblical truth, and then I try to hold other people to that standard as if it was a standard of somebody being spiritual or unspiritual. That's when it becomes Pharisee because there's nowhere in this book where I find the, the thou shalt wear a suit and tie to church. I can't find that. Now, uh, I feel very strongly about that on a personal level. I do. Uh, but I have heard preachers and pastors, I mean, they literally, I've heard them say from the pulpit that basically God couldn't even use you if you weren't wearing a suit and tie. Show me that in the Scripture. I triple dog dare you, which means you have to do it. You can't find it. And I don't care how loudly you shout. I don't care if your face turns blue while you preach. I don't care. You can't find it. And what you have done, you have elevated a tradition of man to the level of Scripture, and you have cheapened Scripture. That's what you have done. Now, there's other situations I know of where they don't wear a suit and tie, and I say more power to it. Listen, I know a preacher who is a chaplain at a drug rehab clinic. And God began to move through that ministry, and these drug heads are getting saved right and left. And before he knows it, this preacher has 30 converts that got saved at that rehab clinic. And they need to be discipled. 
So he started a church with those drug heads that got saved. And do you think they were wearing a suit and tie on Sunday morning? They probably hadn't had a tie in that church, and it's probably about 8 or 9 or 10 years old by now. Now, are they right with God? Are they less spiritual than I am? What a ridiculous standard for whether somebody is following the Lord or not. And I actually was talking to a preacher the other day about this on, on Facebook. He was talking about basically the same thing. God can't use you. That, that you ought to give God your best. And, and you're slacking if you're not dressing. And he, he laid out the way you're supposed to dress. And uh, my argument was this. I've been to some of the poorest places in Mexico. I've been to some of the poorest places in the U.S. ministering. And they're not having that argument down there. They're not having that argument down there. I went to a farming village in Mexico, and we went and knocked on doors about two hours before a service we were going to host. And we had it in, the, in a barn in the middle of the village in July. I didn't think anybody would show up to a barn in the middle of July in Mexico to hear preaching and singing. Oh, especially on such short notice, but would you know, almost everybody in the village showed up. Most of them were barefooted. I'm talking about just as poor as I've ever seen. I didn't know people lived like that. I'd been protected. I grew up in the suburbs of Tuscaloosa, and, and I'm talking about families of five and six people living in a 10 by 10 shack with dirt floors and sheets for windows. Are you kidding me? And you're going to tell them that they're not following God if they're not wearing a suit and tie? You know what that tells me? If somebody's stupid enough to say something like that, they have never done any real world ministry. They're so in their echo chamber and so in their bubble, they can't even function unless there are people around people that think and talk and act and dress just like they do. I don't have time for it. That's the same problem that I ran into when I was preaching on the streets at gay pride parades and abortion clinics. There was folks that didn't have the backbone to come out there because they didn't want to be associated with that crowd. Friend, I remember it was Jesus that got slammed because he was eating with publicans and sinners, and that was a big deal. Who you ate with and your position at the table, that was a big deal in that society. And so... um, I don't have time for it. I do it, and it's a way that I honor God. But I don't think I've ever once looked at somebody and said, I can't believe he don't have a time. I thought he was a Christian. I thought he loved God. There's been times where I preached on the streets, or I, I preached in a tent in the ghetto. I wasn't dressed like this. In fact, I would have overpowered whoever was there. They might not even, I've been places they didn't even have the money to buy a suit and tie. Ridiculous. Silly. I'm, I'm, on, I'm not even through point one. Y'all pray for me. And I know, I know I seem frustrated, but let me tell you something. Jesus was compassionate to sinners, but He had zero tolerance for this religious crowd. He said, even in this text, He said they had the greater damnation. He told them that they were white-walled sepulchers, white-walled tombs full of dead men's bones, that inside they were full of deadly poison. They were vipers, uh, broods of vipers. Well, it was just healthing and wealthing unto death, wasn't it? <laughs> I would say that whatever you wear, do it for the glory of God and not for fear or approval of men and women. 
I think about, um, I know this is uh, kind of going along with this, and I'll move on. I've spent too much time in this one place. But a dear friend of mine, Brother Terry Rogers, he, he's actually out of Brother Bearfield's church. He started a homeless church in the streets of New Orleans. And we got to go on mission trips down there. And on Sunday, we would take the vans out and we would go pick up homeless people off the street to come into a little storefront that they had rented for a few hours on Sunday. You think those folks were dressed like this? <laughs> That's why Real world ministry will get rid of a lot of your tradition. I'm just here to tell you that right now. Um, but on to the next one. I'll, I'll kill this and I'll run it somewhere else. Surely y'all have never dealt with this here, but I have. Uh, I've heard it preached from the pulpit that you shouldn't have a beard, which is one reason why I do it. Amen. So those folks, so those folks won't ask me to preach for them. Amen? I'm serious. I'm serious. I'll give you a specific example. My father-in-law uh, was sick and had to get somebody to fill in for him last minute, just like I had to do last week. Thank God, Brother Rev didn't do nothing crazy. But the guy he got to preach for him, he spent almost an hour preaching against beards, and half of my father-in-law's church members have a beard. And he had to go fix that. So silly. I wonder what they do about Isaiah 50 when it's prophesying of Jesus' death, and it talks about how they pluck the hair out of his face. Wonder what they do about that. Jesus had a beard, <laughs> but uh, that people, but they elevate it. I, I, I ran into another person who was talking about that, and and they literally said God couldn't use a man that had a beard. And so I started naming all the preachers: Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody, and all. These, I mean, just silly. But that's what people do when they elevate tradition to this. They look stupid. We ought to honor this book. And that means, listen, you can have strong traditions. You can have, you can have strong convictions. I don't like that word tradition. You have strong convictions and you can do things to honor the Lord. And that's wonderful. I applaud you. Please don't think I'm throwing stones. But don't take those convictions and elevate them to the level of Scripture and then hold everybody else to that standard. That is the epitome of Phariseeism. Um... I know uh, another example. I, I, I keep on going with these examples. Uh, I, know, I know people, good people, good Christian people, that will not eat at a restaurant that serves alcohol. Now, if that's a conviction unto yourself, I say praise God, more power to you, just all to the glory of God. But don't you dare hold other people to that standard. Y'all know me. I preach against alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. I don't support it. I'm not for it. I'm against it. Y'all understand that. But I eat at restaurants to serve alcohol. Am I ordering alcohol? No. And some people have said, well, some people might think that you're doing that. Going, Are you serious? I mean, let's just, let's just go into a hole and not do it. Let's just stop living life because of what someone might think about you. Now, if, if I will say this, if one of those Christians invited me to eat somewhere, I would purposely pick a restaurant that didn't serve alcohol because I'm trying to respect that. I'm not trying to slam that. But, um, but I have, and, I, and what I want to say in my fleshly Brandon spirit is, uh, well, you better not shop at Walmart. <laughs> I'm, I mean, really. Boy, we're having a good time this morning. I think about uh, talking about the clothing deal. 
And I'll move on. Another, another thing, and this is a big deal in certain places where I come from. Uh, I've heard men that would near about preach a woman into hell for wearing a pair of pants. Um, and, and they normally, they go to, their big verse is Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5 where it talks about uh, a man shouldn't wear that which pertaineth to a woman and a woman shouldn't wear that which pertains to a man. But the thing about, I find that interesting about that is they never quote the verses after that where it says don't wear mixed uh, garments, mixed fabric in your garment. You can't, in other words, you, you have to wear like fully cotton or fully wool or fully linen. And then it talks about even not even mixing your seed when you sow a crop. And I found that so ironic that a preacher who was wearing mixed fabrics in his garments would quote that verse, apply it to everybody in the congregation, and not even read two verses later. Now, let me, let me talk about this for a minute. Now, as far as me and my wife, that's our conviction. And it really was Liz even before I met her. She does that. She, she wears skirts and dresses, and that's her way to honor the Lord. And I support that. We raise our daughters that way. And I, I'm glad about that. I've got reasons for that. But I couldn't take this book and give you one. And that's fine. We never look at anybody crossways who doesn't do that. We, we, we would never judge somebody as if that was an, a spiritual... Oh, look, they're so spiritual. They're wearing a Oh, I, I can't believe they're wearing... I thought they were a Christian. We don't do that. That's Phariseeism. And it's been elevated to such a level that it's just... It's crazy. I would say once again, whatever you wear, do it for the glory of God and not because of the fear or approval of men and women. And so... Uh, Y'all are going to make me preach this whole thing, I think, this morning. But um, <clears throat> I think about, this is a good example of what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, we got Halloween coming up. Uh, on a personal level, we don't celebrate Halloween. We don't, I, I know the story behind it, I know the history behind it, and I would not want to give a wink to something that has such pagan roots, really. But I'm fixing to confuse you, I'm fixing to throw you for a loop. I don't celebrate Halloween, but I love Halloween. You say, why is that? Because it's the only day of the year that you have people coming to your door. (laughs) We're fixing to go out in a few weeks and hang out door hangers. They're coming to your door on Halloween. And I love it because I have a big bowl of candy. I greet the kids and the parents and I give them candy and I give them gospel tracts. Isn't that a novel idea? And I tell you the contrast with this good story that I want to illustrate this with. Before I was saved, we used to go trick-or-treating a lot. And I grew up in a pretty sizable neighborhood and houses were close together. And with as many houses as possible. And I still remember this. I was probably 13. I still remember this. We were about to go up to a house. And as I got up to the house, they had put a sign, nailed it in the yard right there in front of the door. And the sign said, we are Christians Therefore, we do not celebrate Halloween. Therefore, we will not be giving candy to anyone. Don't knock on our door. And I thought, wow, those are the Grinches that stole Halloween, you know. But, <laughs> but, but as a saved person, looking back, I thought, what a wasted opportunity. They, they probably thought that was spiritual. They probably talked about it with their church members and said, yeah, bless God, we told them. We don't celebrate it, bless God. Because they're so concerned with appearances, with how things look. 
I just ordered hundreds of Halloween-themed tracks yesterday. I guess y'all need to vote me out because I'm getting ready for them. And maybe they'll come by this year. I was upset last year because they didn't come because of COVID. I hope they come this year. What a great opportunity. You see how Phariseeism enforces the law of the matter. It's concerned with the outside, but it misses the heart of the matter. Do y'all see that? I'll say this. None of, the th- none of these things... Oh, I, one more thing before I get there. Uh, I, I know, I've known people that were so worried about what somebody would think if they didn't show up at church, they would come to church sick. Or make their, they would make their kids come to church sick. I'm talking about deathly sick coming to church. Go home. What are you doing here? That's not loving. That's concern. Instead of being concerned about what God thinks and what He knows, we're concerned about what people think. But none of these things that we've mentioned... The suit and tie, the beards, the skirts, and the dresses are what we do about Halloween. None of these things make a person spiritual. And none of these things make somebody holy or unholy. Matthew 23, verses 25 through 26, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. He groups them again. He says, Hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Don't be a Pharisee. They are concerned with looks rather than the heart. They're concerned with appearance. I'm on point two, but I won't take as long as these next two. Second hallmark of a Pharisee, not only appearance, but approval. And I guess we could say applause as well. Uh, Verse 38 again, it says, And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware the scribes which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces. And so they... They love the approval and the applause of men. And by the way, when it talks about here them loving salutations in the marketplace, what it actually means is in that society, when a scribe or a Pharisee would walk into a room, the people there were expected to stand up out of respect and reverence for them. You you want to practice that? I walk out the door real quick and walk back in. Y'all all rise for the pastor? We're going to do that? I hope not. But that's what they did. They wanted the approval and the applause of men. Uh, don't be like them. They love to be recognized by their peers. I've seen this attitude in the Baptist church. I've seen a bunch of preacher worship in my day. Listen, I've been to camp meetings where, you know, the preacher would just fish for amens. It's like he was just throwing gas on a fire trying to get people excited. And what's so sad is I've been to meetings where you could have a guy that preached an amazing sermon on the grace of God or the cross or the blood of Jesus, and it would be like crickets chirping. You wouldn't hear a sound. And the next guy get up and, you know, he's slamming liberals and Democrats and he's praising Trump or he's bashing women for wearing pants or he's <clears throat> idolizing the King James Bible, and they would nearly shout him out of the building, Glory to God! Yeah! Amen! Preach, preacher! Silly. Silly. I, I knew of one preacher specifically. He's with the Lord now. Uh, he preached at a church not far from where I, li- I lived over there. And the church he was preaching at was known for their pastor. He was just a great expository preacher. He was going to preach the Bible. And when that guy preached revival for this pastor friend of mine, it was amazing. 
I bet that guy quoted 70 plus verses from the top of his head. I mean, he was dissecting a text. It was fantastic. And about three months later, I just so happened to be in another meeting in another state of another flavor. And that same preacher, that evangelist was preaching there. And this was a pretty harder, independent crowd, you know, that you know, harps on a lot of things we're talking about. You would have thought it was two different guys. He, he opened, I still remember this. He opened his Bible to Proverbs where it says, Meddle not with them that are given a change. He shut his Bible. And the title of his message was 50 to 100 people that you shouldn't meddle with. I mean, he was calling out Methodist, Southern Baptist. I believe he would have preached against breathing if he could have got away with it. And it was all based on the crowd he was preaching to. I was so disappointed by that. Friend, we ought to preach this book. We ought to live this book. We ought to share this book. And our message shouldn't change based on who we're talking to. Amen. If we're preaching the truths of this book, it'll work here. It'll work in California. It'll work in Mexico. It'll work anywhere. You shouldn't have to change it for the culture. That's right. I understand there's some things we need to be sensitive to. I get that. But the message shouldn't change. The Bible says that the fear of man bringeth forth a snare. Don't be a Pharisee. Seek the approval of God and not of men. It's God that looks on the heart. Lastly, last point, I told you I would be shorter with this. The third hallmark of a Pharisee is authority. Their love for authority. Look at verse 39. Uh, it, It says... They love the salutations and the marketplaces and the chief seats and the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feast, which devour... Now, this is important. This is why it's so important to preach through books of the Bible and not isolate texts. You need to underline that phrase, devour widows' houses, because it becomes important here in a minute. Which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, these shall receive the greater damnation. And Jesus sat over against the treasury, and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow. Didn't we just read something about that? And she threw in two mites which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast into their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Now I've heard it over and over and over again. I've seen preachers, and I've probably even done it myself, that isolate verses 41 through 44... And they preach a message about giving from this widow. But honestly, that's not the context. The context is not giving here. Now, God loves a cheerful giver. We ought to want to give to the Lord. We ought to want to be faithful to do that. But this is not a text about that. She's here. The reason he brings up the widow is a point of contrast to point out their hypocrisy and their wickedness. And what he says is... These scribes and Pharisees, they devour widows' houses. Now, what they would do, they would rob widows in one of two ways. The scribes, one of their jobs was to keep legal records, house deeds and things like that. And if a woman's husband died, a lot of times uh, if they needed a loan, they would give the widow a high-interest loan knowing she couldn't pay it back, and then they would receive the property when she couldn't pay it. The second way is... 
they would guilt her into giving her husband's inheritance to the treasury. What we just read about. What she just did. She very well could have been one of those destitute widows that they had robbed blind. I bet she was. That's the point. And if you're going to look at this at giving, I mean, yes, obviously we could say that she gave from the heart and it was more valuable because her giving was sacrificial. But ultimately, if you preach it that way, what's the point? That you need to give all of your money away to a corrupt organization and live broken poor? I don't think that's the message there. And so he, she is there for a point of contrast here. The Pharisees and scribes, they craved authority even at the expense of exploiting the weak. And who, who among society is weaker than a destitute widow? Two mites would have bought nothing. It's not even the equivalent of one penny in our currency, not one. And so uh, if their hearts had been right with God, they would have been taking money out of the treasury and even out of their pockets to give this woman instead of getting her for all that she had. But you know why they didn't care anything about her? They cared nothing for her because she had nothing to offer them. She was no benefit to them. They used her for everything they could get. And a Christ-like love is a love that expects nothing in return. I wish we could get that. A Christ-like love is a love that expects nothing in return. I say this, if you don't love people, you don't love God. And if you don't have the love of God in your heart then the God of love does not reside in your heart. And I've seen Pharisees in Baptist churches and in Baptist pulpits. I've seen preachers and pastors. They destroyed a church because they wanted to be the kings of the castle. They wanted to be sole authority. They didn't want anybody disagreeing with them. They wanted everybody to go along with everything they, they thought, said, and did. There was no humility at all. And the Lord gave us a great warning about this in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, The elders which are among you I exhort, that's pastors, who am an, also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, nor for filthy lucre, like we just read about the Pharisees, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. I'll say this too, and I'm, I'm coming in for a landing. If you ever want to find out who the Pharisees are in your life, around you, have a need. If you ever want to find out who the Pharisees are in your life, have a need. And God really, I tell you, He taught me a lot because I can speak about these things because that's what I came from and that's who I used to be. And I know when we had this medical situation with Leah, we spent almost all of 2019 and on into 2020 going all over the country seeking medical help for her issue. And it's amazing to me. Some of the very people that I thought would have been there, some of the very people who had actually even had disagreements with me about issues of Christian liberty, and those that acted so spiritual they crossed every T and dotted every I, they never so much as sent us a text message. Say, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And yet we had churches of all denominations, some that I had never met that I did not even know sending us money, hand over fist to help with traveling expenses and medical bills and things like that. 
And I know this is going to upset people, and that's why I'm going to say it. But I even had a, <clears throat> I even had a pastor, I consider him a dear friend now. He pastors a non-denominational church, but he is a good, conservative guy. He loves the Lord. We differ on issues. We know that. They had asked me to preach at some kind of men's prayer breakfast. And I think there were several churches involved. It was a circle that I really wasn't involved in, but he knew who I was through the abortion work, and he knew um, what situation we were in. And and I, I preached for him, and I preached, guess what? The same as I'm preaching here, I'm not going to change for anybody. And do you know that before I left that place, those men came by and slowly, you know, this hand here go into my pocket and this hand here, and I didn't think nothing. I walked out of there, they had given me over $6,000 to try to get to Los Angeles. But hey, they didn't have a suit and tie on. Some of them had a beard. (laughs) Silly folks. Pharisees. They dress and they polish the outside of the cup. But there's nothing on the inside. They're dead on the inside. And they miss the whole picture. They miss it. And so, I'm just secure in who I am. I'm I'm secure in what I believe in. And because of that, and listen, I have made more enemies, or what I'm fixing to say, than I have preaching on the streets to a bunch of homosexuals. And that is this. When you're secure in who you are and what you believe, you don't have to be afraid about showing compassion to people that you disagree with. Period. And in fact, if you're incapable of showing grace to people that you disagree with, you probably need to check some things. Something's wrong. Only insecure people cling to those things and take them so personally. And uh, there's some people in the circles where I came from where... In their theology, there is no such thing as a secondary issue. Everything is on the level of the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and salvation by grace through faith. If you just you can agree on ninety nine point nine, but they're going to separate fellowship over that little petty detail. I'm not going to do that, friend. Jesus didn't do that. I'm not going to do it. And so I made more enemies over that. Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? In closing, I just want to say be real. Be real. Commit everything that you have to God. Sell out for the glory of God and don't be fake. Don't be a Pharisee because they're fake. Don't be a Pharisee. They love appearance. They love applause and approval and authority at the expense of others. I'll say this and I'm, I'm done. I'm sitting down. I've got more respect for a lost man on a bar stool than I do for a lost man sitting on a church pew. At least he's honest about who he is. They're going to the same hell when they die if they don't repent and put their trust in Christ. But at least he's not pretending to be something he's not. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ today? Or do you just have a dead religion? See, they were religiously trained, but they weren't saved. Have you been religiously trained? Are you playing games or do you really have a relationship with the God of the universe? Have you repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And does that relationship bear itself out in everyday life? Do you have the love of God dwelling in your hearts? Are you motivated by a desire to please God? If not, you need to repent and trust Jesus Christ to save you from your sin.